everybody. Welcome back to Crime Scene Queens. I'm Shelly, your legal beagle and your resident court cat. And I'm Laura, your friendly neighborhood field mouse and resident CSI. And today we actually have a very special guest. We are actually going to interview a gentleman whose nickname is Tad. And some of you may know who he is and some of you may not, but you're definitely going to learn all about him. And I'm very, very, very excited that he's on our show today. So, Tad, can you do me a favor and just kind of say hi and introduce yourself? So, hi, Shelly and Laura. I'm Tad Tobias. And my uh, Tad is my nickname, but my real nickname for true crime purposes (laughs) is the nobody guy because I specialize in consulting and working on nobody murder cases. Exactly. And nobody doesn't mean nobody. It's nobody. It's uh, yes. a lack of the corpus. Lecti. Yes. For you Latin yes. fans. For the Latin fans. Which is kind of funny to be on a forensics podcast when you don't have a body, because of course that's one of the problems is you don't have a lot yes. of the forensic stuff you usually have when you don't have a body. Mm-hmm. So that's it. That's Correct. the show. Uh, it's it's there two we minutes. Go. We're it's all done. <laughs> and good luck with your next show. Yes, you can use <laughs> Mr. Google to find out who Tad is. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> exactly. We'll see you next week. Well, first of all, I have to say, okay, Tad, you are an attorney. You were a USA. And so, you know, we do have a schedule. And I have to say thank you so much for being on time because <laughs> in, in the legal field, we have ish time. And you know, you were actually like very punctual. You, in, in fact, you were a minute early. So I really appreciate that. Yes. Uh, Round of applause. I, I try to be on time and I'm no longer uh, an AUSA. I have a completely different job that I don't talk about on the podcast, but I was a prosecutor in D.C. for 12 years. And most of that time mm-hmm. I did homicides about the last. 10 yeah, years. your resume is impressive, you know, and um as you were like mentioning earlier, we are taught as little baby duckling CSIs that when you are having a death investigation, regardless of the nature of that investigation, the biggest and most important piece of evidence is the body. So mm-hmm. in your experience, kind of starting from beginning to where you are now, like take me on that journey of how you became the expert in these cases that didn't have the body. I'm so curious as to how that came into your expertise. So when I was in law school, I was very interested in becoming a prosecutor. I wanted to be an FBI agent, but I have really poor eyesight, so I couldn't pass the FBI (laughs) eyesight test. So I thought, well, what's (laughs) like an FBI agent? And a prosecutor is kind of like that. You can use a law degree. So I went to law school. When I came out, I interviewed at a bunch of prosecution places, but I had a professor who was actually the prosecutor for John Gotti and the successful prosecution of John Gotti, a guy named John Gleason, who went on to become a judge in the Eastern District of New York. And I just like worshiped this guy and took a class from him. And he said, oh, you want to become a federal prosecutor. And to do that, you got to go to a law firm, got to go to a big law firm. So I did that. Didn't wasn't crazy about my time at a law firm, but became ultimately a prosecutor in D.C., which is a great place to be a prosecutor because D.C. doesn't have a district attorney. So all of the crimes in D.C., for the most part, from shoplifting up to murder, are actually prosecuted by the federal prosecutor. It's the largest U.S. attorney's office in the country. So I spent most of my career really what most people think of as a D.A. I was a homicide prosecutor, violent crime 
prosecutor. And I did some stuff in federal court, but it never really interested me. In fact, the joke was when someone would come into my office, like with a drug case or a public corruption case, I would always ask, is there a dead body or a person in the case? And they'd say no. And I would say, well, then I don't give a shit because that's the only thing I care about. <laughs> is doing so, right. so I have to cut you off real quick because I do have to ask you just a real quick question. So do you happen? this was this is something that um, another attorney has always says to me. Do you happen to know the difference between a uh, federal judge and God? Uh, I don't think there is any difference. <laughs> yeah, the, God is not the federal right, judge. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yes, in, yes. Federal court is definitely. Career, is this a lawyer so, joke? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I like, think, you, you guys are hilarious joke. with your lawyer jokes. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm learning something new about federal yeah. judges. So in D.C., you have the local court, which is called D.C. Superior Court, and those judges are local court judges, but they're actually presidentially appointed, but they're not federal judges. So every oh, that's odd. judge in Superior Court, of course, ultimately wants to try and get on the district court, but they also think that they're like federal judges because they're paid like federal judges and they have 15-year tenures and and, you know, they're appointed by the president. But so it can we have a very good bench in D.C., to be fair, because it is a very high quality. But they all want to go on to district court. So so when I became a prosecutor, wow. I tried very quickly to try to get to the homicide section because that's what I was interested in. And probably about two or three right. years in, I started doing homicides and I did that the rest of my career. I was a supervisor a couple of times, but I always kind of kept my hand in it. And then one day a colleague of mine came to me because he was transferring a section and I was coming into a new section. And he said, hey, I have this missing persons case, but I really think it's a homicide. And I was very excited because I thought like, OK, murder is the ultimate crime, but a no body murder is like the ultimate murder. So this is like the peak of the yeah. peak. And then I ended up working on this case, trying this case successfully prosecuting this case because as i tell people if i'd lost the fucking case i never would have done anything yeah. with no bodies again. <laughs> right like, yeah no i'm done i'm a i'm a crack cocaine prosecution expert now yeah there you go yeah so that's how i became interested yeah that's amazing. I, I totally relate. All right, let's just put it shortly. I went from a very wealthy agency where we had literally every crime scene tool available to a different agency where there was like holes in my crime scene van and I didn't have a measurement wheel because the first city I had about four <laughs> homicides a year and the second city I had two homicides a week. So I understand your, your inner drive to yeah. want to do something bigger. And in D.C., I learned when I started researching it, I thought, oh, my God, D.C., Homicide capital of the nation at one point. We had 486 mm -hmm. homicides one year. We regularly had over 300 a year. For a city of, at the time, was only about half a million people. But they had only had one other successful no-body case. So that was what also kind of piqued my interest was, hey, yeah. we haven't had that many cases. We had one. How do you actually prosecute this case? So I started looking nationally a friend of mine in the office who had investigated a nobody case but hadn't prosecuted gave me a list of like 50 or 60 cases a law clerk had found. So I just started researching the cases. And because I am super, super anal and I've written down every mile I've ever run since seventh grade. You're kidding me. No, in fact, the desk I'm sitting at, no one at home can see this. 
but I'm showing you ladies. Oh you my queens. goodness. These are my running logs that record all the miles since seventh grade. Oh my god. Yeah. You should like wow. laminate them right or here. something or it's like I know. I'm like, what happens if what happens if the house burns down? Do you- I won't have them anymore. Well, then well, those that's miles the you grab. Yeah, those miles would be gone. Clearly, you never ran them. No, they disappear they now. No, you need to put them in a trapper. <laughs> no, you need to put them in a trapper keeper. And then if there's a fire, then you grab that or trapper like, keeper. Throw them in the fireproof <laughs> safe or something. But so anyway, so I started recording every case I could find. Mm-hmm. And as I was doing, you know, my case and investigating it, and I decided at the time because I worked, you know, for the Department of Justice. I didn't want to get approval for a website, so I just did it anonymously and posted it on the, uh-huh. the interwebs. And I didn't use my name. I just said the nobody guy. So that was how the nickname oh. came up. And then when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, I said, oh, I can, like, come out of the shadows or uh, come out of the closet, so to speak. Come um, out of the nobody closet. <laughs> the nobody closet where I was where I was, where I was actually storing a body and you can see the closets behind me there's like six bodies yes <laughs> so that was when uh, then I started really doing it and really counting and eventually wrote a book that came out in 2014 but I'm actually working on yes. a second edition so that's going to come out hopefully sometime Ooh. next year yeah so I'm very excited about that they said yeah you sold enough books which I think was like five and uh, we'll do a second edition. <laughs> That's great. And you can get 20% off if you shop now. Exactly. Or if you go to the remainders bin about six months from now, you can get it like for 20 cents. <laughs> okay. So here's my story about your book. I was going to buy it to read it, but I didn't realize when I saw that you had authored a book that it was a textbook. Yeah, so I'm like, cheap. it's like 70 to bucks. Be fair, I mean, I, when they told me the price, I was like, it's $150. No, get the paper When I tried back, to look to buy cheaper. it. I'll send well, I'll send you I'm all a, pro- a copy because you're having me on my <gasps> podcast. I will read it. Oh, I'm so and excited. I'll, ch- I'll charge you $68 because we're friends. Mm. So it's really fantastic. <laughs> well, I am a professor, so I can probably get them to send me a desk copy if I wanted to be sneaky about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about using wow. this for my entire class. Not. That's exactly right. <laughs> wow. But actually, yeah. it probably wouldn't. I mean, depending on what you have in there, my class intro, is intro to crime scene investigation. So it would be an interesting module to like propose to the university. But the point of having no body, unless you're living where I am, where we probably have an entire swamp full of bodies in the Everglades, like very Dexter, it's or it's Jimmy Hoffa that's somewhere in Giants Stadium. It's not actually that easy to get rid of a body, in my opinion. And that includes like disarticulating them, burning them. Like everybody yep. on TV makes it seem like getting rid of a body is super easy. Let me tell you, as a previous forensic anthropology student who had to dismember and disarticulate many bodies... It is not so, so easy to do that. No, you're, it's a lot you're of effort. exactly right, Laura. It is not easy. I mean, if you're talking about 150 to 200 pounds of flesh, mm-hmm. bones, teeth, all of the hair, all of that, mm-hmm. it really is difficult because it takes a long time mm-hmm. for a body to decompose, even in Florida, very hot and humid yes, climate. even in Florida. Yes. It can take a long time. It's sort of physically hard, right? I got to like saw It's it athletic. Yes. Even and with I maceration. Say, yeah. Yeah. I always say if you've ever been, as I know you both have, to a medical examiner's office, you see the mm-hmm. what they used to call orderlies. I don't think they call them anymore. But the people who basically work 
with the bodies, not the forensic pathologist, but their arms are like, oh, the text. they're not like mine. They're like my yeah. thigh they have for forearms yeah. from like sawing yeah. and everything. It's crazy. Yes. Yeah. So it, it is, it is very hard. And as a result though, for, you know, folks like you all, you leave a lot behind, right? You got Foucault's principle of, of transference. You're going to, there's, it's almost impossible to completely clean up and that's what leaves exactly. behind for the forensic crime scene analyst. You know, there's going to be hair, blood, uh, yes. clothing traces, Teeth. other things, liquids left behind. It's, it is really difficult. And people think, oh, I can burn a body on like my barbecue. Oh, yeah. Does your barbecue go to 1400 Fahrenheit? Because I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I was teaching a, a course uh, pretty recently. I, and... Uh, the last day of the course, we do a mock trial. So I have them bring in their reports and such. And we were talking about this case where this guy had killed his girlfriend and dismembered her and was like getting rid of her different parts and pieces of her throughout, you know, a week or so. But the torso, he was just like, I'm done. I'm just done. like, I'm, yeah. this is so exhausting. Much. You know, he's like trying to cut it and everything. And he literally just left it on the stairs in between like apartments and was like, yep, I'm getting caught. So yeah, here we are. Exactly. No, and that's, yeah. and that's why, you know, bodies of water are important because you can weigh it down and you don't necessarily have to cut it up as much. But you can, they turn to soap sometimes. Oh, right? yeah. We, that we, was, ep yep, that was episode two for you. Year. I skipped episode <laughs> two because I was like, I'm going to the courtroom one because the soap one sounds good though. I'm going to come back and catch that one It's later. about Adipus here. Yes, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it's, we, cause I have actually in Florida, I've had quite a few Adipasir cases. But yeah, you know, to your point, I think the reason why the Everglades is just so insanely unique is not only are they dense with brush and plant growth, they are also rich with wildlife. So it's yep. a lot easier than it would be in other, I mean, as you both probably know, and our audience probably can extrapolate, the Everglades is such a unique ecosystem that it's literally the only one of its kind. So the ability to yeah. hide a body in all of that plant life mixed in with the swamp, and then you also have the predators on top of it, and some of those alligators do consume bone. So yeah. we are yeah. a bit unique here. Yeah, and we'll, and the predators will carry it away as well too, which makes it they even will. more difficult. You may think, oh, I yeah. found the yes. scene. I found parts of the body, no. but I don't have the whole thing mm -hmm. because it's been carried away. Or That's I right. found the carried away piece, you know, a toe, a foot, yes. or a hand, but that's all I have. I yes. don't have anything else. Yeah, it's a real challenge in Florida. Yeah. It is. And, you know, uh, speaking to like our discussion about how difficult it is to disarticulate since Shelly talked about like this torso that was just left in the uh, staircase. In a situation where there was no criminal violation, so there's not that anxiety and that adrenaline of, of am I going to get caught? As a student in a completely legal mm -hmm. environment working on a body donation, it takes over a month to remove soft tissue, to disarticulate to put in the maceration pots, to boil, to then remove, yep. empty, strip, boil. It takes over a month to get a human body to bone without the natural processes of decomposition. There are some bits of research that and show the, that you can have a And then the spices you add and the, the it's so, yeah. it's, it's just, Add a little it bit of cinnamon for the aromatic. <laughs> well, you know what's yeah. funny about you saying that is the odor is – particular for maceration. So in order to help degrease yeah. the bone, we do put something 
the equivalent, not this exact thing, but the equivalent of Goo Gone. So it's like this citrus odor mixed mm-hmm. with boiling people. You're welcome, guys, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Everybody's Eat welcome. Up, everyone, it's dinner time. Eat up. When you're listening to it's you. dinner yeah. time. Yeah, without <laughs> the stress of having to worry about getting caught, it takes forever. Yeah. Well, that's a so, good point, mm-hmm. though, because that's what actually points to a lot of our suspects, right? Because yeah. if I'm a burglar yeah. and I break into someone's house and the homeowner is home, and I'm like, oh shit, the homeowner's home. So I take my pistol and I shoot and kill him. I'm not going to say, hey, I think I'll hang out and cut them up and get rid of the body so no one will ever know. Yeah. No, they're going to get the fuck out of the house. So your your suspect, typically in a no-body murder case, 54% of the time, is a domestic person. It's the ex-boyfriend really? or the husband. And so when you don't yeah. have a body, because they're the only ones who can take the time, typically in a controlled scenario inside a house, to get rid of a body, right? Because it takes right. a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. So when you have a body yeah. that's missing and you suspect murder, it does help generate, well, who would be my pool of suspects who could do this? A right. burglar is yeah. not going to do it, but a husband might because a husband can spend two days inside of a house and can, yeah. you know, cut up the body, tote it out, can clean it up in the bathtub and all that. And that's why you do see so many no-body murder cases are domestic because it's just those two people in the house. I took the time to pose the question to my community of crime scene investigators. And I said, hey, how many of you have had a homicide where there was no body? And tell me about it. And Tad, I was wondering if you had this experience, like, subsequently. A lot of them wrote back and said, well, we have, but sometime later, eventually, the body was found. Yeah. And I was wondering if that ever happened to you with any of the things that you've prosecuted where, like, there was no body, and then, like, sometime after it's gone through the court system, then it presented itself. Yes. I wouldn't say it's common, but it's not uncommon, if that makes sense. Right. So what you often find is in all the cases, like in my book, for example, I think we're up to, I always forget, it's like 540 cases right now. No, I'm sorry. It's like Mm -hmm. 570 cases. All of those cases are trials and they went to trial without a body. But often when the person is convicted, typically it's a guy, he'll say, hey, after he's convicted and oh, shit, I'm facing the death penalty or life without parole. Although the death penalty is somewhat uncommon in a nobody murder case. But say he's facing life without parole. And he says, hey, if I tell you where the body is, will you knock it down to, you know, life with possibility? Of parole? Yeah. Happens all the time. Happens also because many nobody murderers are narcissistic, are all about control because they're domestic abusers. Right. Not, it's a completely right. common mm-hmm. pattern. And so they'll say, I'll take you to where the body is. So. One of the things I did after I wrote the first book is I had my older daughter go through the book and do a spreadsheet of where bodies were found or disposed of in cases that we knew where that happened. And I'm still paying for the therapy bills from her having to do this. And that's that's, that's good. It got me what I wanted, which was a spreadsheet of all these cases. And here's where the bodies were disposed of. And sometimes it was because they found the body afterwards. Sometimes it was because the defendant admitted it or there was a strong suspicion what had happened. And so you could kind of tell, well, what's the most common? Just, Just dumping is very common. 
body of water is very common, but dumpster right. is extremely common, particularly in an area like Washington, dumpster. where I live, because it's easy, right? You'd put it in a black trash bag and you throw it in a dumpster. Nobody looks at what's mm-hmm. inside a dumpster. Right. So, but you, it's not uncommon for people to use the body as a bargaining chip to, to, to help themselves down the road. I hear you. Yeah. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, they yeah, they plead guilty because they want the lighter sentence or they want to escape potentially the, the death yeah, penalty. Absolutely. Yeah. Like why wouldn't you say, okay, I'll tell you yeah. where it is now? And there's a famous case in Maryland involving uh, a guy who killed his next door neighbor who was a little girl. It was a it was a somewhat rare stranger on stranger. And years later, for for no benefit. He ended up telling the prosecutor where the body was and they and they took him to the location and they dug him up and it wasn't that far from his house, which is the other thing you see. Typically, when they yeah. do find the body, it's not it's in a location familiar to the defendant. Right. Because as you've both noted, it takes a long time to get rid of a body. So I'm not going to get rid of a body yeah. in a completely strange place where all of a sudden I'm digging a big ass grave. And I'm about to put the body in and some farmer shows up with a shotgun saying, what the hell are you doing, boy, on my property? Yeah. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah. So you often yeah. find That's... they're going to locations known to them, which, of course, is important from a forensic and, and investigative standpoint of saying, if I'm this defendant, where would I go to get rid of a body? Exactly. That's really interesting. Yeah, that that story you just told is strikingly similar to like the Lovely Bones, kind of like yes. some random yeah, neighbor. Absolutely kidnapping yep. a little girl that's never a great scenario he, he'd actually um, killed i think he'd actually killed two girls one of whom the body they found and then the second one they right. didn't find until ultimately years years later oh and you want to hear one more fun fact yeah yes the, of the course the prosecutor on that case is now one of the attorneys for donald trump this guy named jim trustee was a great wow. prosecutor yeah so fun so really? fun in wow. To our modern times. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Oh, I like it. Look at that. That's impressive. I mean, I'm sure he's getting a hefty paycheck now. So good for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure he'd like himself uh-huh. to disappear now. He's like, could someone just fucking well, kill me now with this guy as a client? <laughs> he he certainly is a busy yeah. boy. Yeah. But you know what I, uh, I've been circling back to in my mind? Because I've not had many death investigations where there there wasn't a body. I can think of one in particular, but I was not the lead investigator. I was um, a supportive role uh, in crime scene unit. So when I was first hearing about this with you and your specialty, my first thought went straight to like what I would do on a crime scene like that and how I would collect evidence like that and what it would take for a prosecutor like yourself to have what you needed to do things. Like, for example, the call uh, that I have a recollection of in my career is there was a constant state of discord between two neighbors. Eventually it came to a head. There was constant threats of violence. One guy disappears. The other guy is seen driving his truck down the road with garbage bag in body shape in the bed of the truck. Later, through very good forensic work, like one or two teeny drops of blood were found in the bed of that truck. We saw him driving towards a large garbage where they bring your garbage, the- uh, Landfill. The, 
Yeah, the landfill. Thank you. To a landfill. So he clearly, we brought dogs out there. We did everything we could, but we never recovered the neighbor. But that is an example of something that did go through. But I left before I found out the end resolve of that. So like what kinds of evidence do you, you guys need when you're doing this? Like what do you look for? For me, I would say like circumstantial evidence is what you've got and turning that into direct evidence. Yes. If there's any possibility. And direct evidence can be, you know, cell phone information, CCTV. But one of the things I The ping is how we know that. Yes, where they are. That's how we knew he was going to the dump. Yep. One of the things I talk about in the book and when I do the training for investigators is, and this is, I think, particularly important for forensic investigators who are used to saying, what's here? What can I find that's here? But you also have to think about, well, what's not here? What's what am not I not here? finding? No, we're, I'm, yes. not finding the void. I'm not finding her Correct. phone. I'm not finding her purse. I'm not finding certain things that I would expect to find you know, in, in a house where, okay, the person's missing, but, but, you know, if they're actually, if someone killed them and got rid of those things, am I finding, uh, if I found some evidence of some trauma happening in the house, am I finding implements that are consistent with that? Or am I not finding them? If you're looking at a knife and a, um, a cutting block, are all the knives there or is there a missing knife? Mm-hmm. So those are the types mm-hmm. of things we talk about. There's a very well-known case I lecture on where a woman goes missing and the guy tells the family, hey, she went on vacation. So the family comes over to the house and is looking around. And this is you know, perfect for uh, women forensic investigators, which we have so many of them. And they start looking through the women's stuff. And what they realize is Yes, there's a bag packed. It's missing. Yes, there's clothing missing. But there were no bras packed. And immediately, what does that tell you? A dude packed her fake ass bag and pretended that she went on vacation because he's like blouse. That's right. Pants, underwear, didn't pack a bra. And so ultimately, they went to the police and told them and said, look, she would never go on a trip without packing bras. And we can see because her drawers stuffed with them. All of her bras are here. So that's the type of stuff of yeah. making a conclusion from something yeah. that's there I love or that. not there. And that's really critical to tell forensic folks. You're not just looking for what's there. Think about what's missing that may have been used and use the family to say, what is not here? Oh, yeah. His yeah. chainsaw is missing. Oh, well, shit. That's a good yeah. fact. If I find blood yeah. in the garage and the chainsaw is missing. So those types of things talk about, you know, what might be missing from a scene. Not You're not only there to collect what's there, but to think about what should be there but is not. I love that story exactly. that like about the bras. When I was in college, uh, one thing that kind of sticks out in my forensic psychology class is my professor was trying to demonstrate why it's important to have that diverse perspective of things. And there's a scene in Silence of the Lambs. Absolutely where Clarice Starling is asked to go inside the governor's daughter's room or another missing girl. I don't remember which one it is. And they say, well, you can go in there, but there's no point. It's been combed over and over and over again. And she picks up a jewelry box and instinctively pulls the bottom out of it or pulls the mirror out of it because like, that's where, like, the girl, like, she was thinking like a woman, like, and then she found like all of those photographs. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, and it, it, it it's is just really a man important. would never think. 
Yeah. yeah. And I and I talk about that actually. I've been working on writing the second book, and I talk about when you are conducting any type of murder investigation, particularly a missing person that you think is a murder, you have to have a diverse team because you have to have people of yes. different ages and different genders. Because if you're talking about social media and things like that, all of us are of yeah. a certain age that, you know, we probably use Facebook because we're losers. And our kids say, yeah. <laughs> you, you, I know you all probably have much younger kids than I do. But my kids who are 25 and 22 are like, Dad, nobody uses Facebook. You're pathetic. Use... My son's older than oh, your okay. kids. So uh, we use TikTok <laughs> and we use Insta and used to be Snapchat, not so much anymore. But you need yeah. to have that diversity of experience. It can't be old white male detectives um, yeah. because they never would have picked up on, oh, all of her bras are here. They would have been like, oh, that's a drawer of her bras. Gross. Don't want to touch that. Like creepy. Yeah. And, and that is yeah. a really important point. Yeah. And, you know, I actually love that point because like whenever you say these things, you're triggering all these like perspectives for me because in that second city that I worked for with that high volume of homicide, the homicide team that I worked on was relatively diverse. Maybe not so much when it comes to age, but when it comes to like background and considering the volume of homicide that we had, the success rate was pretty damn good, Tad. Right. It, it makes a huge, yeah. it makes a huge yeah. difference because you just have these different yeah. people who know different things and understand, yeah. you know, different, different perspectives of, of particularly if you're a victim is a young female, which they often yeah. are, to only have yeah. older guys on it is like, am I going to really figure mm. out what she might have done? Like, would she have gone Good to a call, bar yeah, alone? For sure. Would she have met someone online? All of those things a younger, you know, female could say, well, yeah, that's totally normal for my age co cohort. Or no, yeah. that's kind of crazy. Like most people my age wouldn't do that. That's a really valuable yeah. insight that that you need to have. And I think yeah. that's actually one of the really good things about so many women are moving into the forensic field. It's yeah. become so popular, partially because of the popularity of true crime. But it does bring in a lot of perspectives that, you know, certainly didn't exist when when I was kind of a junior prosecutor. It was starting to change a little bit, but it was still mostly mm -hmm. guys who had been cops who said, oh, I like the forensic side. So they just kind of shifted over to that. It, it wasn't a specialty area for people who right. weren't already cops. And I know at yeah. my current police organization, we've hired civilian forensic techs, which, yes. is, which is a really good thing. I don't think you have to be sworn. No, it's it. actually, um, you know, I we could probably talk a little bit about that, like uh, at a different time between you and I. But I have a certain interesting perspective on how being civilians have actually cost us as forensic practitioners in terms of things like respect. I'm sure that you can probably figure out where I'm going with that. But I also should probably say that that is not globally true. I uh, have worked with detectives where there wasn't even a blink that happened because I was not a sworn law enforcement officer. But there right. is also a different population of people that said dumb crap to me like, oh, if you're not sworn, you're not born and all that. And I mean, I love yeah. working with police officers yep. and detectives. No, and that's true. And I mean, I'm they, a civilian attorney in a police yeah. department so i right. no one yeah. talks to me at all the entire day they're like right we're seriously yeah. <laughs> civilian attorney i got nothing to say to you buddy are you basically <laughs> like the equivalent of hr oh, <laughs> right exactly <laughs> i heard you say i'm one of the brought on one of the podcasts about hr wenches i was like oh that's actually kind of a funny phrase <laughs> i like that 
I can't say that. It <laughs> Did I say that? I will be fired, and I'm the one who's supposed to be enforcing all go. of that stuff. So I will not. Did say I say it, that? I, what would I chuckled to myself? I mean, our team, our team represents law enforcement, so you know we have a very close relationship with them, and you know it's that attorney-client confidentiality, that privilege. Yep. Yeah, and that and that so, helps. Yeah. I mean, that I will say. A lot of officers will say that to me. This is privilege, right? And I say, yes, it is. So they will give you. More. <laughs> That's a good benefit to have by having that attorney-client relationship, yeah. for sure. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It is like HR. You know all the secrets. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> all the bitching happens in there. <laughs> exactly. I'm saving it all for my book, though. My tell-all when I retire. <laughs> oh geez and you're not retiring anytime no, soon are you no march 28th 2025 but who's counting i mean <laughs> who's counting wait that's that's like three yeah, years not that far, far away, away. Not even. Not that far away that's that's super close and what are you going to do after retirement so i actually would like to spend more time doing no body stuff yeah. i really enjoy the consulting you know i don't charge for it so if any of your listeners want to send a case my way. I just actually talked to someone who i think is going to send something okay i don't charge for cool. it because for the most part Police departments can't pay. And I only work with police departments. So if your, you know, yeah. boyfriend is locked up for a nobody murder, uh, he may be innocent, but I ain't helping. So I That's I'm, not your area. <laughs> Go to the Innocence Project. No. And, and actually, <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be serious for a minute, the Innocence Project is a great project. Yes. And I'm a firm believer oh, yeah. in it. But it's just not, I work with, you know, police and prosecutors. And there certainly have been times when I've said to them, hey, you don't have it in this case. Like, this is not close. And frankly, I'm not even sure you have the right guy because you have like three viable right. suspects. So I do believe in that. Um, but it's well, good just, for you. I feel like yeah. to have credibility with the law enforcement community, I have to stay very pure. And I've had family oh, members yeah. call me and tell me about cases. I'm like, yeah, that kind of sounds like your son actually didn't do it. Um, well, but it just yeah, is yeah. not, that's not, that's not my vibe. And I do yeah, think yeah. to maintain credibility, I only, you know, we're, and I don't work for families either. Families can't hire me or anything. I just, I have to, I have to get the police file, as you know, because if you don't have what yes. the police have, it's really hard to work a case. You know, it's like, well, you could, you could read the newspaper clippings and, you know. Okay. So in that capacity, then you would be considered like a trial consultant so that all of your work would be privileged. Yes. Although for the most part, I work with the police. I occasionally work with the prosecutors in a big Part of my role is the police will come to me and say, hey, we have a case, a nobody case that we think we can bring. Can you help us convince the prosecutor? And so I'll sit down with them as a team oh. and say, uh, yeah, this this is a good case. And here's why. Yeah, I do that. I oh, do a lot of really that because they like the fact that I was a prosecutor. So I kind of speak prosecutor talk to say, yeah, I think you can. Mm -hmm. I think you can make this case. You know, and sometimes, like I said, I say to them, I don't think you have enough here. I think you need more. Yeah. Um, you need to, you need to mm -hmm. do, I'm, I'm a big to-do list guy. And so I'll give people a to-do list and say, here's what I think you need to do before we can even go to the prosecutor. That's super interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Jinx, Shelly. We were both like, yeah, that's awesome. I know, right? Have... Have six nine, nine, ten. You owe me a Coke. <laughs> I know. That's what we do as kids. Yeah. You know. Um... Or a glass of white wine. I feel like, like this right would be there. a really that ain't cool water, people. Yeah. You think I'm drinking water on this uh, podcast? You know what you're saying about like post career. I could see crime scene investigators really taking value off of like a webinar or even an in person training on that. So maybe mull that over in your mind. 
Yeah, because, and I mean, I've, uh, never, I've never looked to make money off it. I made a, a very small amount off mm-hmm. the book. I generally get right. my, like, my expenses paid for. But unfortunately, my current job is super strict about outside employment. Yeah. When I did mm-hmm. think, oh, uh-huh. maybe I should think about, you know, maybe teaching or doing something like that. But to me, I feel very passionately about these cases. And yeah. I think we've come to a good place where it used to be a lot of prosecutors would say, eh, you don't have a body. We can't make this case. And I think we've gotten away from that. And to me, that's a good thing. And hopefully I've played a very small role in that in convincing people, no, you can make a case. It's in all 50 states, Puerto Rico, D.C., the Virgin Islands. They are cases being made every single day. Yeah. And what's interesting are the 570 cases that I have found, more than half of those, probably 54, 55% have happened since the year 2000. So you're talking about oh, really? half wow. the nobody murder cases in the last 22 years. And I have cases going back to like the early, I think the first case is like 1819, which was like a bunch of wow. dudes in a ship. They're like out sailing, like, hey, the captain sucks. Let's throw his ass overboard. And then they come back in the port and it was like, where's the captain? It's like, well, I don't know where the captain is. I don't know. It's a mutiny. <laughs> so it's well, a good old fashioned mutiny. They're like on trial for it. And they get the, it's so funny when you look at the trials back then. The trial was like one day and the next day they were hanged. It was like, wow, he didn't fuck around back then. <laughs> Due process really wow. did not like. Yeah, it's like, there's no appeal. You lost the trial. You're good. There's no now. appeal. Yeah, there's. So there's are no... you talking about the the list that you have? Is are, is that the list of cases that you're? Yes, referring it's to? summaries of all the cases are in the book. But when I wrote the first edition of the book, it was 399. But now I'm up to about 570. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's on my website, which is nobodymurdercases.com. Yep. There's uh-huh. a table of all yep. the cases yep. there, so someone can go. Yeah, it's that. 133 pages. Yeah, it's very long. I just did it on a Word document, which anyone who's like computer savvy is like. The fuck is that a word doc like, why didn't do you, you make excel to, have you heard of this thing called excel and i'm like eh, i don't do excel it's i just totally do fine. a word doc. yeah don't you have like a law clerk or don't you guys have like i have i have my lawyers have people she, like, went off to college and i was like okay yeah fine leave your dad whatever well i mean <laughs> i'll volunteer i'll volunteer yeah shelly will help you experience i got you it, it, it yeah. probably can actually go. fairly easily be and, and what's funny is when my older daughter, Joanna, when she did the spreadsheet of the where the bodies, you know, were disposed of, she, of course, did an Excel spreadsheet. And I was like, OK, I'm That's, totally yeah. embarrassed. My, you know, college age daughter has just cranked out this wonderful spreadsheet. And, and what's funny now is for the second version of the book, my younger daughter, Sophie, who I have to mention, because if I mention the older one, you got to fucking mention the younger <laughs> one. She's updating her sister's work for the second book. And that the will actually The scales of justice. I know. And then they're, you know, because uh, she's probably like, do I get a cut of the book? I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> but I am paying you know, her you really... for her work. I'm paying her. That's nice wow. of you. So it's funny that you keep mentioning this, like, uh, like small monetary, like, reward from the book because uh, – when I was in grad school, my mentor authored a book and she was all excited when it came in and I was standing there and I was dating somebody who was in my cohort for the grad program at the time. And he said to her, hey, how much money do you make every time you sell one of those books? And she's like, oh, you know, like nothing. And he goes, nothing. <laughs> what the hell did you put in all that work for then? Because he was very like frank. Yeah. And she goes, prestige. 
And he goes, when the phone bill comes, oh can you gosh. write prestige on it and put it back in the mail and send yeah. it to AT&T? Heather, you have to make money off of all of that work. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, let me tell you, because like you said, it's priced like a textbook, so it's very expensive. And, and you know, the good news is I'm I, looking I, for I my copy make, in the mail. <laughs> I probably make 10 bucks off the sale of it. But I didn't yeah. do it for the money. Yeah. I, mean, I did it because everyone kept saying, you ought to write a book. You ought to write a book about it. There's no book out there. And yeah. there's, a, there's actually another book coming out by uh, someone I've connected with about nobody murder cases that is not exactly like mine, but is similar, which is good. I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here. I have this book here, which is called Murders Without yeah. Bodies. It's about oh. prosecutors prosecuting four or five nobody murder cases. Um, oh my so goodness. there are some wow. other books coming out. I actually have a nobody murder hall of fame and it's for any prosecutor who's prosecuted more than one nobody. Cause I only prosecuted one. Wow. But there's probably about 13 or 14 prosecutors across the country who have prosecuted more than one, which to wow. me is really impressive. And then there's about two or three who have prosecuted like four or five nobody murder cases, which to me is really, you know, impressive. I mean, I had 20 murder trials as a prosecutor and only one was a nobody. But when you think about, God, these people have had multiple ones. That's to me pretty impressive. Yeah. It's, are you consulting with them on, on their cases and such and helping yeah, them? Yeah. So there's a prosecutor out of Michigan I've worked with before. Um, he's done a lot of cases. There was a very famous case out in New York that I've worked on. So I generally don't talk about them. That's kind of the agreement. As I say, once I work right. on a case, I'll never talk about it again but I that's okay that's kind on, of the nature of our show yeah. yeah you just you just don't and i probably consulted on about 50 across the country now and a couple internationally mostly i stay in the united states but so you know 50 over the past 15 years and if i had more yeah. time i'd do more i'd probably be more aggressive about doing more so um Maybe when I were yeah out. yeah the the nature of our show Shelley and I share our experience through investigations but we are always devoid of identifying details so yeah. as you listen I noticed when you to said the rest that. of our yeah. show yeah so like for example yeah. if like I am asking you about like this evidence question about like oh like what would you collect and there was a case that came to mind that could illustrate that then it would be more of a situation of you being like oh this girl went missing kind of like how you did with the young lady uh that her neighbor swooped in and took yeah. her like mm -hmm. like that's preferent uh preferential anyway so you don't have to feel like you have to spill your guts here however if there is something that's like particularly interesting like the story about the bra like that's so intriguing and you didn't like exploit anybody to say it so like do you have any other like thing in the back of your pocket like that with like a nuanced detail that kind of was the trick that uh, led to uh, the case being able to be brought? The one I would use is actually not a nobody case. It was a case, another oh, okay. murder case I worked on in D.C. So it was a woman who was murdered by her husband and very horrific scene uh, in, in one of the few that I actually went on live because in D.C. for a long time, we went to murder scenes um, because I knew we prosecuted by neighborhood. So I knew if a murder okay. happened in DuPont Circle, it was mine or, you know, Shaw, it was mine. So I went to this one because it was in Brookland, which is a neighborhood near Catholic University in D.C. And it was a woman who had her throat cut so severely when I walked in and saw her on the bed, 
I thought it was a smile because it was just like that gaping and yeah. kind of, it looked like a mouth. And wow. I was like, oh, that, that ain't a smile, brother. Yeah, that's not. And the, wow. the key piece of evidence in that scene was actually spotted by my boss, who was a very experienced prosecutor and supervisor, but he'd been a cop for 12 years. And most importantly, he'd been a smoker. And when he looked at that, we're flipping through the crime scene photos and he sees the, the, the house had been ransacked like a burglary. So if you looked at this scene, you would say a burglar did this and she was murdered upstairs, Mm -hmm. trail of blood running upstairs. And this ransacked chest of drawers, it's like the the doors are open, the drawers are pulled open, shit is spilled everywhere. Mm -hmm. And on that ransacked chest of drawers, at the end of it was a cigarette perched on the end, and there was probably this much ash hanging off Uh. it. And it was very clear when my boss looked at it, Cliff Keenan, he said, the murderer (laughs) smoked that cigarette because there is no way that that chest of drawers yeah. would be ransacked and a cigarette would be sitting there before that. Just happened. sitting there. And he said, I'm a sm- I am was a smoker. He was, it wasn't at the time. He said, what smokers do is they smoke and they put it at the end of the furniture and they make sure the ash is hanging off the edge so they don't burn the furniture. And he said, this guy ransacked this thing. He took his cigarette. He perched it there at the end and he left it there and he forgot about oh. it. So our crime That's scene awesome. person, who is a great person, we call in D.C. the ones who do the murders are called mobile crime techs. Because I know on one episode you all were talking about the different names. So the homicide yes, ones yes, were called yes. mobile crime techs. She took a bunch of photos of it. She scooped it up. And, of course, cigarettes, as we know, are great. Great evidence. Day. Great. Great they evidence. Perfect, they yes. tested it, and that was our murderer. And that was I love it. the main piece of evidence in the case because the murderer was, the was at the time, the husband. They were, in a, they were separated and getting divorced. But he had left a bunch of DNA in the house, including blood in the house, which we also think was from that night. But if we'd only had the blood... He would have say, well, yeah, I live there and I cut myself. Big deal. Yeah, I live yeah, there. But yeah, that yeah, yeah. cigarette, yep. every juror looked at it and said, yeah, that cigarette mm. wouldn't have been there yep. other than this burglary. Yep. And that was the key piece of evidence. So That's that became known as the cigarette case. But I always thought that was the, the biggest and best forensic case of my career because it was just yeah. so... I, I To this day, I remember I was a very junior prosecutor. It was the first murder I worked from beginning to end. And I remember sitting in my boss's office and he's flipping through these photos with me. And he immediately says, that cigarette is the murderer's cigarette. And that is so awesome. It is. And I'm really glad that there was such great crime scene photos that that yes, could Connie have been Hickman, rest seen. She was great. Oh, I can use names of people who did good things. But yeah, Connie died a few years yes. ago. Fantastic. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. She was really, she was really Yeah. Great. It's so funny because when you enter the field of forensics, you don't realize the emphasis that's placed on photography until you're like in role. Yeah. And then you're like, wow, this is a way bigger deal. And I probably would have taken some more photography classes in college had I known. Yeah, it really yeah. is. It really, and, and what's funny is lots of times you see such crappy photography and you're like, did you learn how to take a oh. photograph? Luckily, the guy that trained me on my first crime scene job, his hobby was photography. So I had a very nice jump start. I didn't, 
understand basic elements at first. But then, of course, they sent me to training. And next thing you know, I'm painting with light. So oh, I loved painting with light. everybody it's loves it's painting with light. Yeah. I, I'm just I'm so interested in, you know, in your life and your story and everything that's happening and everything that's, you know, that's going on. And, you know, so I'm just curious. You said that you're planning on retiring and then you're going to spend more time doing the no body cases. Are you going to be traveling around doing them? Or are you going to stay stationary? Like, what is your... So I generally stay stationary. I get the police department to send the file to me. That's the kind of the main requirement is they got to send me the yeah. whole file, which means, of course, crime scene photos, the interviews, all of that. I find most departments are willing to do that. You know, they put on a flash drive and FedEx it to me. And then I'll go through yeah. everything. I mean, I just worked a case out of Montana. It probably took me a year to get through everything because it was a huge, huge file. But that's what I find to be the most useful. And then I'll kind of write up a report. Here's what I think. You know, do I think you have it? Do I think you don't? Here's what I think you should do. And then I'll sit and talk with them with the investigative team, which typically includes the prosecutors and say, here's what I think needs to be done on the case. Um, and I think it'd be fun to do it as, you know, not necessarily a full time, but it's kind of a, you know, I always say this is more than a hobby, less than a job. It's kind of in between that. Yeah. Um, but I think Agreed. it would yeah. be a, a fun thing to do. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, we have I, a lot really, of CSIs yeah, that listen to the show. So if any of you guys have a nobody case and you want yeah, a consultant, reach out to Tad, nobody, nobodycases.com. Nobodycases.com. And then my, nobodycases my um, email. Is just tad.debias at gmail.com. It's pretty easy. And you can't beat the price. Okay. I mean, you may get what you paid for, but you can't beat the price. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely amazing. Is there anything else that you would like to, you know, talk to us about, tell us about, yeah. tell us, our no, listeners about? I would just about? say I'm excited about the podcast because there hasn't been yeah. a lot of podcasts that focus on the forensic side. And I think that's, that's really cool. I think it's great that two women are doing it because it is a very popular career path and expanding career path. Yes. And as a father of two daughters who love true crime, they're the ones who kind of turned me yes. on to it. I, I think that's a great, I think it's a great thing for people to see women in the law enforcement. Oh, well, thanks for having Truly. me. Absolutely. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, you know, shout out to your daughters, both of them. Yes. Thank you everyone for listening to us and for, you know, joining us on this amazing podcast with our wonderful guest, Tad. Thank you so much for being with us. And, you know, if anyone else wants to learn a little bit more about true crime, definitely listen to us. If you have any questions, feel free to give us a shout out. Our email is hello at crimescenequeens.com. Make sure you check us out on all of our TikToks and Instagrams or Insta, as Tad called it, because we do have those. <laughs> Laura, what do we always say? Well, if you're gonna die... Do your local CSI a favor and die in an interesting way and please leave your body. Crime Scene Queens is a Q-Code Media production. Executive producers David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Ryan Countshouse. Edited by Nate Dufort. Theme song and music by Darren Johnson. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. 
From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. 